and welcome to Meetings Done Right, a podcast about how to use table size inclusion cards to improve your meetings. And uh, where many of the other episodes of this podcast have focused on a single card in the deck, in this case, we're going to talk more generally about all the cards in the deck and sort of the, the, the larger point of the kinds of things that we're trying to uh, encourage with these cards. And we have a special guest with us. It is Claire Liu. Claire, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure thing. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Noel. So hello, everyone. I'm Claire, and I'm the CEO of Know Your Team. We are a software tool that helps managers avoid becoming a bad boss. So mm. we give you... <laughs> yeah, most people, when they hear that, they go, ah, yes, <laughs> nod head. <laughs> uh, so we give you educational guides that are all online, online tools to help you run one-on-one meetings, build trust, get feedback. And then we also give you an online community with over a thousand managers who you can learn from. Awesome. So Claire, TableXI uses Know Your Team. And a couple times a week, there are questions sent out to the whole company, sometimes silly. Like, uh, I think today, actually, we had what's your favorite breakfast cereal? It just it turns out it's surprisingly polarizing. <laughs> yeah, it's a hot topic. <laughs> I'm very hot. Uh, but the more important things like, are there places you think we could be more transparent? Or were there things we could have done in our onboarding process to make things easier for you? And it has bred such a great part of a feedback culture. That's so amazing to hear. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about the impetus behind it originally. Yeah. So uh, I got the idea for Know Your Team because I had a really bad boss, Ashley, uh, you know, kind of common story, I'm sure, for for many of us who, when we think about, you know, who who that worst boss is in our career, a clear answer usually comes to mind. Mine definitely does. And this, um, this boss, uh, so this was maybe seven or eight years ago, uh, was a really great person, but just had no idea how truly bad he was as a leader. And Whoa. Yeah. And it was both like sad, I think a little bit and, and frustrating, but, but most, you know, sort of impactfully is it really affected sort of my well-being. I realized, you know, when you don't have a good boss, when you're unhappy at work, it really bleeds into every part of your life. And so I decided to, to start a company to figure out, well, what's a solution to this? Because, you know, I remember Googling for consultants and software products and nothing really seemed to fit. So I decided to create my own solution. And Prior to this, I had started a company before and I'd studied learning and organizational change, but didn't really know what I was going to build. So I actually first Mm -hmm. uh, started a consulting practice working with CEOs one-on-one to help them get to know their their company better. And my first client was a company called Basecamp, which is actually sort of down the street from you guys. Yep, in Chicago. For folks who are listening who might not be familiar with Basecamp, they make uh, one of the world's most yeah popular project management software products. They have over 15 million customers, and their CEO Jason Freed approached me and said, "Claire, I, you know this is the biggest problem that I'm facing. I feel like I don't know my company. Can we hire you to be a consultant for us?" So uh, I did a project for them, and then coincidentally enough, they happened to be building their own software prototype to uh, hmm. solve this problem internally themselves, and that was actually what was then called know your company. And so they originally built this tool and it ended up doing so well for them and for some other folks that they decided to spin it out into its own separate company. And then they asked me, Claire, would you like to be the CEO? You know, we'll split equity 50-50, but you can run the whole thing, grow it. What do you think? 
And I said, yes, please. This is <laughs> essentially my dream job and, and what I've been wanting to, to build. You know, I didn't want to build a consulting practice. I wanted to really build some sort of tool eventually that could, on a more wide scale, help bosses like my former boss and just most importantly, help folks who are working in the teams for mm-hmm. others, right? Like I just, I, the thing that motivates me to this day Ashley, is just the fact that I know what it feels like to work for a bad boss. And gosh, I just want to help people not feel that way. You know, I feel like, so in a little bit, we'll ask you what was the worst meeting you've ever had, but mm-hmm. I, and, and we've gotten great responses. <laughs> I feel like we could get the same great responses if we asked people about their worst boss ever, because I know in my career, I've had some doozies. I've also had some brilliant people that I really respect, but- Whoa. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I often pose that question when I give a talk called uh, the accidental bad manager, because what a a lot of times we, yeah, what a lot of times happens is when we think about who that worst boss is, like I was saying, a clear answer really very easily comes to mind. You know, this person is usually very formative. Uh, I call this person an anti-mentor in some ways, because we usually pattern our own leadership behavior to be different from what this person was, or sometimes unknowingly we adopt some of their behaviors but they're extremely influential in our own style and and choices of leadership. But I often pose that question, Ashley, because what we don't often think of as an answer is that, is that worst boss actually us? Could we ourselves unintentionally be someone else's worst boss? Whoa. Yeah. And the reason is because the statistics that have been shown on this are really interesting. So Gallup did a study or they do a study every year, you know, you're, you're probably, you know, both you and Noel are probably very familiar with it. It's um, called the Q12 assessment, and they survey millions of managers and employees in, I believe, over 84,000 business units. And in the most recent survey, they found that 82% of the time companies choose the wrong manager. So companies will choose people based off their success as individual contributors, and that doesn't necessarily, sure. yeah, translate And then most interestingly, Gallup then identified, I believe it was six to eight traits that they saw as essential traits of successful managers, and that indicated that you had a innate talent for management. So this doesn't mean that you can't learn these traits or skills, but it just means that out of the gate, do you exhibit these traits? And they said that only one out of 10 managers actually have the traits to lead well. Again, doesn't mean you can't learn it, but it just means that the likelihood that you know us here on this podcast might be someone someone's worst boss, it's yeah. like, well, there's like a 90% chance, 90 to 80% chance that that's, that's likely. The tech industry is notorious for promoting programmers into management jobs that they have no business being in including at various times myself, I think. Yeah. So I know that I have been someone's worst boss. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, sometimes early in my career, before I really knew what to do or how to be a great advocate for my team, yeah. that was certainly the case. And also I've been in sales management for, I sort of go back between being a lone wolf and a sales manager and Sales management is just not a popular profession. So it is not. You don't do it because you like to be universally loved. <laughs> right. Well, and here's the thing I think, you know, I would almost extrapolate that out to almost every leadership role of all industries, just in the sense that there's no quote unquote 
manual or even a good model of success of leadership, which makes it really hard to be good at. So for example, you know, Noel, you mentioned that in the tech industry, you know, you have a lot of programmers who are promoted into managerial positions. Well, what's interesting is programming. It's pretty clear there are, you know, there's a standard of what it looks like to be an excellent programmer, right? Like that, that's pretty clear or a good designer or a good salesperson, right, Ashley? So it's like, the, the standard of success is very clear for those roles, but for leadership, the models all vary. So it makes it really hard to figure out, well, how do I even get good at this? And then for the folks who are promoting you into this role, they're often looking at the, the wrong metrics. They're just going, oh, you performed really well as an individual contributor. Well, and you seem like you're good with people. Well, let me just, you know, let me just throw you in. When in fact, the key traits that, that make a, a great manager are three things. One, building trust. Two, creating context and communicating direction at all times. And then the last one is communicating honestly. And that often is not extrapolated nor measured nor examined well on an individual contributor level. Yeah. Yeah. So that gives us a chance to segue into how those qualities might play out in the kinds of meetings that a manager might be leading and the kinds of environments that a good manager creates to allow for transparent communication, allow for people to feel safe. What are some of the things that a good manager or in our more generically in this case, in our case, a good meeting facilitator can do to make that space and make that process better? Absolutely. Well, I think that's the whole purpose, you know, behind the inclusion cards is to provide, you know, some some prompts and some some structure. But I think the facilitator of the meeting or the leader of the meeting plays an especially essential role role, regardless or not of, you know, what other tools that you're using to create that honest and transparent environment, because whether or not you really know it or accept it as a leader, everyone is watching you. Everyone is picking up on and trying to read your cues as to even small socially, you know, socially acceptable behavior, like, do I raise my hand when I want to contribute? You know, what's the volume of like the voice that I should use? Like, how much energy should I be showing? Is it okay that I look at my phone? Is it not? Right. So Mm. it's really, I think, critical for a leader to be exceptionally intentional about how they create this open and honest environment. So I definitely have, have a few suggestions. So the first, yeah, has to do with what I was saying about how the leader is very much a model for the kind of behavior you want to be seen and reflected throughout the rest of your group during a meeting. So it's a concept that I call going first. So for example, if you want your team to be honest and vulnerable with you during the meeting, guess what? Surprise, you actually have to go first and be (laughs) honest and vulnerable with them first. So you can't expect to see a certain kind of behavior if you personally Don't exemplify that and set the tone to begin with. So tangibly, what does that look like? Well, that means then in a meeting, you know, you should open it up instead of just saying, so what suggestions do people have about how last quarter could have been better, right? Instead of doing that, say, Mm -hmm. you know, start with yourself saying, I want to admit with what I struggled most with last quarter. And I want to, yeah, just share how I was uncertain about a few things. I thought I personally didn't perform well on these issues. I was a little self-conscious about, you know, how, how this went over and level with people. And what's most interesting is, so we actually ran, we ran a survey last year with almost 600 uh, managers and employees about trust. And we found that the number one most effective way to build trust, according to these respondents, was to admit your vulnerabilities as a leader. So if you're thinking about building trust in a meeting and trying to create that open, honest dialogue, going first, being vulnerable, 
is first and foremost thing that you should do. So that's number one. That's a solid, solid tip, Claire. That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah. So number two is uh, to really pay attention to the questions that you're asking. And, you know, I have no doubt that that's sort of like, you know, folks who are listening to this um, or yeah, you and <laughs> both Ashley, you and Noel might be listening going, uh, yeah, duh, Claire. Yeah. Ask specific questions, ask good questions, of course. Right. That's a good thing to do in a meeting. It's actually much harder to do in practice. So for example, how often do we ask in a meeting, how's it going? And nine times out of 10, you ask, how's it going? And people will say, it's fine right? <laughs> or what should we improve? And people will go, uh, you know, there's no, you know, it doesn't really elicit specific concrete responses. And so in fact, you only get specific answers if you're asking specific questions. So it's, it's why in Know Your Team, you'll notice every single question that we ask the team is something like, is there an area outside your role that you think you could be contributing in? Or is there something that you think we're behind the curve in as a company? Or do you commute to the office and does it take longer than an hour, you know, one way? So the more specific the questions, the better. That is the the second most important thing. That's interesting. Yeah. And then the third sort of bucket of things that actually maybe there's, there's one fourth bucket, but the third bucket of things that I'm highly conscious of is as a leader to really pay attention to how you communicate your own opinion so that it doesn't sway the rest of the meeting. So what a lot of leaders don't recognize right away is that your word carries for better, for worse, more weight. Like I was saying, you know, people are paying just like a little bit more attention. So you'll notice as a manager, even the meeting facilitator, you know, you'll throw in your two cents and you'll see people sort of scribble it down on a notebook or like perk their ears up Mm -hmm. a little bit more. Or it'll happen, you'll notice when maybe more senior people weigh in on a topic. All of a sudden, you know, the the tone of the room changes or people are like, oh, oh, yeah, 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 no, wait, we agree with this person. So I have a couple tips for how you can avoid as a leader or a more senior employee swaying the rest of of the group. So one of the things um, that I always recommend is to assign other people the task of disagreeing with you. So as a meeting facilitator, you can sort of force the hand to create a safe space and say, okay, sounds like the seven of us are sort of saying the same things here. I'm going to make it your job to disagree with everyone else, regardless of how you actually feel. So you go around and you ask, okay, so if you had to disagree, like what would your argument be? And that always really elicits wonderful, conflicting health, you know, in a healthy way, Yeah, productive ideas. So I always recommend that. I also recommend giving either the least experienced person a chance to speak first or having the person with the strongest opinion speak last. Hmm. So what this avoids is two things. One is that if you get someone who is sort of newer to the team and you give them a platform to, to speak first, it helps make sure that someone isn't just saying, oh, yeah, what sure. that person said, <laughs> right? <laughs> now, the one con to that is it's obviously a little scary to be the first person to speak. So just to really encourage, and again, maybe you yourself as a leader first, like again, admitted vulnerability and then ask the lesser experienced person to speak. And then the, the idea behind having the person with the strongest opinion to speak last is oftentimes people who feel, you know, really in it about something can sway everybody else. So when you wait to have them go last, it can avoid the potential to drown out any diversity of thought. 
those are really good ideas. Yeah, absolutely. We couldn't agree more. I would say that the genesis of the inclusion cards started with the idea that our CEO was really enthusiastic and needed a playful way to silence himself. So <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So we see this in meetings where we expect to get lots of innovative ideas. And if the CEO says a good idea, everybody goes like, yeah, I mean, he's the CEO. She's the CEO. Exactly. It's a good idea. So like, yeah, let's go with that one. But if you're really there to get the most innovative ideas, that's kind of lazy. So, well, it's also ineffective, right? So it's like you're, you probably actually won't get the most innovative ideas. You'll just sort of be reinforcing what you personally as the leader might think is most innovative. Yeah, absolutely. Becomes an echo chamber. Yeah. Yeah. We want to avoid echo chambers as much as possible in our space. So with the cards, the C somebody like the CEO or the person who has called the meeting has three opinion cards and they lay them down every time they express an opinion. And then once they're out, they're out. They have to just ask questions. And then perfect. We have, yeah, it's pretty good. And then we have a both a devil's advocate card, which you would give to someone pretty junior, and an angel's advocate card, which you would give to someone who has a tendency to poo-poo everything. You would give them the card that requires them to be an advocate for whatever's on deck. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, it's it's one of the things certainly that's that sets it apart for us and we're really excited about. So we again could not agree more. What I really appreciate about that, Ashley, is you are very much defining the roles of what kinds of voices need to be in circulation. That's that's what's wonderful because that's what the meeting facilitator is supposed to do in theory, yet it's always hard to do that again in practice. I was wondering whether you had any uh, opinions on how to specifically apply this advice to remote meetings where people are definitely not all in the same room during the meeting? Oh, that's a great question. So I think the main difference and the main difficulty in remote meetings versus in-person meetings is that when you're facilitating an in-person meeting, it's really handy and important to quote unquote, read the room right? So you're looking at body language, you're looking at who's disengaged, you're looking at who's withdrawn, you're looking at someone who clearly is thinking, right, but they haven't said anything yet. That's what I look for, at least when yeah. I'm when I'm running a, a meeting. And so what you can do is you can very much sort of circulate and ask different people's opinions based off that language. Now, when you're remote, you don't have that. <laughs> so what you have to really I think pay closer attention to is very much the output of what people are saying. So the two things, the two dimensions are how long is someone actually talking for and what is the content and the quality of the content that they're contributing. So if you want diversity of thought and diversity of opinion and you you notice that persons, Abby, Bob, and Carl have all each talked for at least 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And Emma over here has talked for two minutes, like just by virtue of time, right? You can follow that a lot more strictly. And paying attention, not just to time, but maybe you notice that Carl's comments are, you know, really well thought out. He's not just explaining his opinion. He's talking about thought process, right? Maybe, okay, that's, you know, something that needs to be heard more of in the meeting, or maybe that needs to be balanced out with a, you know, someone's opinion who's, who's different than Carl. So who in the mm -hmm. meeting has been, so just paying 
much closer, to, I think, attention to those two dimensions of how long is this person talking for and and what's the actual content and quality of their their the conversation. So, so that's one thing. I think the other thing is, as a leader, you have to be even more rigorous about moderating yourself. <laughs> so yeah, where where you know inclusion cards definitely come in, but I think even in the sense of Again, the measure that I always recommend for leaders is like, how much time are you actually talking during the meeting? You really mm-hmm. should be talking 10 to 20% of the time. If you're talking more than that, and if the majority of what you are saying is not in the form of a question, you're not doing your job. Sure. Okay. Now, well, a question that we have been asking all of our guests is to share a story of their best or and or their worst meeting experience. So what would you like to share with us, Claire? Sure. I can share both, I guess, because I, I, you know, hopefully they'll be helpful. The worst meeting experience I had is when I had to let someone go. Mm. And of course, that's probably true for a lot of business owners. Letting someone go is never fun. But this is when I was, I just started running Know Your Team maybe four or five years ago. And it was the first person I've ever had to let go. And it was someone who was actually a mentor to me, was really um, someone, yeah, I thought highly of. She was a big supporter of the business um, and of me personally for years before that. And I let her go because just unfortunately, the work wasn't what it needed to be. She was way too busy with other clients and didn't give us the proper attention. And so for us as a business, it just, it it didn't help us, right? And I had to really be thinking about the best interest of the business. And uh, the conversation was, I mean, it was hard. There were, she was crying. She talked for hours and hours and hours. And it was the worst just in the sense of, I mean, that's hard to sit with, right? That's hard to, as just a human, to watch someone be really torn up in that situation. I don't think I would have done anything differently because, you know, she was also, like I said, a mentor to me and and I wanted to listen and hear her out and everything. It didn't change the decision, but just from a human level to just be Mm -hmm. there, that stands out as the worst. The best, I would say, meeting experience that I've ever had um, is honestly just anytime I run a meeting or I'm in a meeting and something just truly gets done and there's a difficult sort of navigation of opinions and there's a positive outcome. And I think one of the best actually is not related to know your team, but I uh, used to be the co-chair of something called the Make Work Council for the School of the Art Institute. And it was a, a council that Uh, we fund aspiring uh, entrepreneur artists. And as the co-chair of the council, you know, I have to I, you know, I run this annual meeting with all the the council members who are, as you can imagine, very opinionated, a lot of diverse thoughts about how to structure things, how to divvy up funds. And what I was grateful for was, you know, getting to put some of these <laughs> practices into use of just making sure that, no one dominated the conversation that we got to the decision that we needed to and that the actual purpose of the meeting was fulfilled. Because sometimes you have meetings that are just to hear someone out. Some of them are actual collaboration and working meetings. Sometimes there's a decision that needs to be made. And for us, it was a combination of hearing everyone out and a decision to be made. And I was happy that that was, that was actually accomplished at the end of the meeting. Outstanding. Great. I feel like we've gotten a lot of tips for meetings, but if you do happen to have another one in your pocket. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I remember that I actually had a fourth bucket of stuff to talk about with meetings, which is fine. I'll mention it really quickly, which is that the meeting has to, at the end of the day, you're having a meeting because you want something different to happen. Like there has to be some sort of real outcome. And so defining that and making sure it actually achieves that is actually your sole goal as a leader. 
So knowing beforehand, right, what is the actual purpose? And then at the end, reflecting and making sure that that purpose was actually fulfilled is the biggest. I don't know if that's so much of like a handy tip. So what I guess I'll end with is my favorite sort of tip in a meeting is to ask for advice instead of to ask for feedback. So feedback is often a very loaded. Hmm. It's a word that has a lot of baggage associated with it. People are always like, oh, it's a critique. It's negative. Oh, I don't want to give you feedback. But you ask for advice and it's so interesting. You say, hey, I need your advice about something. Or, hey, could everyone give me their advice? And everyone all of a sudden wants to give advice. (laughs) It just starts pouring in. So I always recommend during a meeting asking for advice instead of feedback. That's a great idea. Well, Claire, thank you so much for being with us and talking to us about meeting. You bet. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Meetings Done Right podcast. If you would like to learn more about the inclusion meeting cards, order a set of your own, or find out about other episodes of this podcast, go to meetingsdoneright.co. That's meetingsdoneright, all one word, dot co. You can also find out more about this podcast by searching for Meetings Done Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving a review on Apple Podcasts will help people find the show. The Inclusion Meeting Cards and the Meeting Done Right podcast are produced by TableXI. TableXI is one of Inc. Magazine's best workplaces and a top-rated custom software development company on Clutch.co. Learn more about TableXI at TableXI.com. Meetings Done Right is hosted by Ashley Quinto-Powell and Noel Rappin and edited by Mandy Moore. Thanks for listening.